I ask you to join me in an opening prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our blessed Redeemer. Amen. In the past few months, our nation has been leveled by the threat of an invisible virus that has taken the lives of over 100,000 Americans. The shutdown and isolation ordered in response to this pandemic has resulted in the unemployment of millions more. Now another threat has brought us to our knees. The difference is this one was out in the open and captured on video. The unjust killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. The response has been a massive and global outcry for justice to right the wrongs perpetuated against African-Americans. National and international protests have been persistent and predominantly peaceful. Yet some protests have included widespread criminal activity in the form of looting, destruction of property and violence. As Tim Stafford stated in his blog posted on our church website this past week, this crisis is serious both for our nation and our church. I agree. Times of crisis and conflict are uncomfortable, but they are also opportunities for us to be open to learn and grow in our understanding. For this reason, I'm stepping away from our sermon series on the pastoral letters to focus our attention on what it means for us to honor God's rule of life and love our neighbor as ourselves. I've chosen two scripture passages the first is a prophetic word from the Hebrew scriptures that answers the question of what God requires or expects of us as worshipers. The, the second passage calls us into account for our human tendency to treat people in different ways according to their outward appearance. Let us give our attention to God's word as read for us by Michelle Huntley. Our first reading is from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Our second reading is from James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there, or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My brothers and sisters, listen, hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. 
Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin. And by that same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep all of it. The one who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you are a lawbreaker. In every way, then, speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. There will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy overrules judgment. The word of the Lord. In this passage, James invites us to imagine two people entering the sanctuary and how we as a congregation might respond to each one differently based on their appearance. The difference between the two is one is rich and the other poor. We could read the same passage and substitute the difference as a matter of skin color, one person being white and the other black. Since our church is predominantly white, the person who is black would be in the minority and may enter apprehensively or feel less at home, whereas the white person could blend in easily. James, speaking of his situation, exaggerates how the congregants fall all over themselves in paying attention to the rich person, but give little regard to the person who is poor. In our setting, we may not be so overt with our attention or our inattention, but just as likely to differentiate all the same. James condemns this behavior on two grounds. First, he says we're guilty of creating distinctions among ourselves. Scripture makes clear that in Christ there are no distinctions, neither Greek nor Jew, slave or free, male or free female, but all are one, God's new creation in Christ. When we ignore this reality and discriminate on any basis, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, straight or gay, married or divorced, and on and on, we follow the world's value system and we deny the redeeming work of Christ. The second charge James levels is he says we're guilty of making judgments based on evil motives. Written into the Levitical Law Code under Leviticus 19.15 are these words. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. God's justice is balanced and equitable toward all. James reminds us that God's kingdom is a reversal of the world system and its values. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2.6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. Those whom the world categorizes as poor and unimportant 
God sees them as rich in faith and heirs of God's blessings. The church that shames the poor, that discriminates against a person of color, or denigrates someone's sexual identity, lacks God's perspective and fails to act on God's behalf. Love for God is inseparable from love for neighbor. James is not done. It's not only a misrepresentation of God's will, it's a violation of God's law and thus a sin. And this brings us to the Micah passage. The setting of Micah 6 is one of judgment. The Lord demands that Israel undertake an honest self-examination of the distance between them and God. The prophet has reminded them of God's grace and past deeds of salvation, having rescued them from their oppression and led them into freedom. Now in verse 6, the scene shifts to a single voice or a singular voice of a worshiper as representative of Israel who asks this question, With what do I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? It's a fundamental question of faith. What does the sinner do to restore a broken relationship with God? Assuming that an acceptable sacrifice will elicit God's approval, the worshiper seeks to know in advance what kind of offering is adequate. He proposes a list of increasing cost and value. He begins with the burn offering of a one-year-old calf. And then he suggests a thousand rams, something only a king could afford, or an endless supply of olive oil. And finally, the gift of a firstborn, firstborn son, which suggests the highest type of sacrifice for a misspent life. The assumption of the worshiper is that what has to change, provided the right offering is made, is God. The focus is on external objects. With what do I come? But Micah makes it clear that what has to change is not God, but the one who is estranged from God. The focus shifts from the adequacy of a given sacrifice to the expectation of living a life that is responsive and responsible toward God, described in terms of three, a threefold um, act, doing justice, putting what is, what is wrong right again, and advocating for the rights of those who are underserved, loving mercy, devoting oneself to acts of kindness and compassion toward those in need, and walking humbly with God, giving one's attention to the will and way of God in relationship toward others. What has to change is not the response of God, but the response of the worshiper. It starts with repentance, the act of stopping one's direction and being willing to move in a new direction. What is required is not the life of some thing, but the living of a life in response to God. I invite us to consider what this call to change might look like in response to our current crisis of racial inequity and injustice. Witnessing the video of the unjust death of George Floyd got our attention. 
In a new way, we're beginning to ask what can be done to end police practices of excessive force and violence against black men in particular. But even more than correcting this miscarriage of justice, we've begun to realize the ugly wounds and scars of racism and its stranglehold on our national identity. As I've watched news these past several days, black reporters have said their white friends are calling them and asking, what can I do? How can I be supportive? How can I help? I admit I did that too. I called Robert, my college friend. As I listened to him tell me some of his experiences of prejudice, harassment, and hate, I was surprised to hear Robert tell me bluntly that the whole problem stems from racism, white privilege, and a system that sustains it. I had no idea how much this had affected Robert's life experience and his professional career, which included significant positions of leadership. He told me about being questioned by authorities, victimized by corporate management practices, and subjected to institutional power structures. But the phrase Robert used that got to me the most was, you never have to think about that. I'm ashamed to admit that was my first lesson about white privilege. If I choose to walk humbly with God in this crisis, it means I have to be willing to admit my ignorance and own the fact that I am part of the problem. Sociologist and author of the book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, Robert D'Angelo defines white privilege as the automatic taken for granted advantage bestowed upon white people as a result of living in a society based on the premise of, a, of white as the human ideal. This white advantage, she says, has been part of the founding of our nation, its laws, policies, and practices. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it, whether you want it, or are even aware of it, it exists. D'Angelo says one of the reasons why it's so hard for white people to see it is that it serves us not to see it. We're told that we deserve it and have earned it, and we take great umbrage when it is challenged. Knowing that there'll be a rebuttal, D'Angelo adds, that's not to say that whites do not struggle or face barriers or work hard or put, pardon me, or work hard, but there's a major barrier in this society, racism, that we don't struggle with and not struggling against that barrier actually helps us navigate the barriers we do struggle with. Racial disparities and inequities are everywhere. They're in our places of work, our schools, our institutions, our government, our organizations, our churches, and in each of us. I don't go around saying the words white is better or superior, but I'm beginning to realize how ingrained racism is in our American way of life and that whether I recognize it or not, it's part of my thinking. 
Such an admission requires me to take a knee in humility before God and my African-American neighbors. To walk humbly with God means I want to reflect God's character of being impartial and of showing love without discrimination. To do that, I need to be better informed, to learn how racism affects the world around me. I hope as a church, we will begin to make significant strides in this direction. In addition to being open to learn, to listen, and to grow in my understanding of racism, I believe it's equally important to identify the pain, the anger, and the suffering of our black brothers and sisters and what they've endured. This is what I think it means to love mercy. We're familiar with stories of racial discrimination and acts of social injustice that we've either read about or heard about or seen portrayed in movies like The Green Book. From the StoryCorps project of recording stories of Americans interviewed by their relatives is this one told by Sam Harmon in 2005. At the time, he was 75 years of age when his grandson Ezra asked him, what was the saddest moment in your life? Harmon served in the U.S. Navy and was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia. He and several of his shipmates decided to visit the nation's capital. Here is what he told his grandson about that day he spent in Washington, D.C. I drove and agreed to be the designated driver. While they were at the bars, I decided to sightsee. I walked around the monuments all day. Feeling tired, I, I decided to go to a movie and rest before I picked up my friends. There was a movie house on Pennsylvania Avenue and I went up to buy a ticket. In the glass window between the ticket seller and myself, I could see the reflection of the Capitol Dome. And I thought to myself, what a great way to end the day, drinking in all this democracy. As I called for the ticket, the ticket seller was reading and punched the machine. I reached my hand to get the ticket and lay down the money. She pulled it back and said, you can't come in here. She saw my black hand and refused to sell me a ticket, angry that I had even had the temerity to ask. I just walked the streets crying all night, betrayed that my country could force me to fight a war, but say you're not a good enough citizen to come to a movie. We might have thought such stories of inequity and social injustice are a thing of the past, but we know better. A friend relayed this story to me of a white family who has an Afri African-American young man living with them in an upscale city on the peninsula. She wrote of how this young man had opened up to her and her family for the first time of the routine harassment and humiliation he had been subjected to. He shared how once a week after football practice, he and his teammate were followed as they left the parking lot on their way home. And just before they would get home, they would be pulled over, made to step out of the car and show their license. 
whether driving or not. And for as long as it took the police to scan their information, despite the fact they had done nothing wrong. She added, he's a very large, six foot five, 275 pound, dark black man, and people appear scared of him or angry. Yet those who know him know he is the kindest, most gentle, congenial person who loves the Lord and loves people. He lives his life with this edge of fear every time he walks out of the house. What it means to love mercy is to become informed, to ask and listen to the stories of victims of racial discrimination, to identify with our black brothers and sisters who suffer because of it. We all know what it means when the wrong that needs to be made right is part of us. Mercy is God's way of not giving up on us, but showing us his unfailing love and believing in us still. If we humbly accept our need to learn and grow in our understanding, if we're able to show mercy by standing with those who hurt and suffer and share in their pain, then we might be able to do the kind of work for justice that can bring about meaningful change for the good. In an interview with Professor Ibram X. Kendi, the author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he was asked this question, what should whites be asking? What kinds of questions should whites be asking? He answered, questions of racial disparities like, why is it unarmed black men in the custody of police are shot and killed too many times when armed white men are simply arrested? Why is it that black unemployment rate is twice as high as white unemployment rate? There is only two possible answers. Either there is something wrong with black people and there is something superior about white people or racism. Put simply, it's uncomfortable to talk about race. Yet if we're to do justice in the face of this problem that is pervasive and systematic and treats others as less than, then we need to do the work and change the way we think about race. As Kendi puts it, there's no such thing as not racist. We're either being racist or anti-racist. We're either expressing that the racial groups are equals and we believe that, or we're thinking that certain racial groups are better or worse than others, or we're advocating for anti-racist policies and practices. As Robin DiAngelo observed, the status quo of our society is racism and it's comfortable for people, for white people. We're not going to bring about any change from a place of comfort. A man being murdered before our eyes is a really high price to pay for enlightenment. This time of crisis for our nation is a time of action for us as a church. In facing this crisis, we need to ask, 
what was what must we do to change when this moment passes and no longer has our focused attention when the cameras and the news media no longer put this in front of us what will be our response then we've been shown the way and what the lord requires as good to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with god May the evidence be the freedom, justice, and peace of our African-American community who longs to know that's true. May it be so. Amen.